Hello, and welcome to Modern American Diplomacy, a podcast exploring the lives and contributions of America's most accomplished career diplomats. I'm your host, Jeremy Beer, recording in Washington, D.C. Today, we're joined by Ambassador Christy Kinney, who holds the State Department's highest rank of career ambassador. Ambassador Kinney served in the State Department with distinction for over 30 years, including senior-level positions at the White House, three ambassadorships, and a stint as the State Department's 32nd counselor, the fifth highest-ranking position at the U.S. Department of State. Ambassador Kinney, welcome to the program. Thank you. It's great to be with you, Jeremy. Ma'am, it's an honor to have you here. Before we get into your career, I wanted to quickly touch upon your childhood. You're one of the few officers I've met who actually grew up in Washington, D.C. How did you go from working as a Senate page and giving tours of the U.S. Capitol building to becoming a junior officer at the U.S. Department of State? Jeremy, like so many decisions one makes in life, it was a little bit random. (laughs) I grew up here in Washington, always frankly thought I would be a senator perhaps someday or certainly work for a senator. And I did for a little bit out of college, and I actually didn't love it. I went to graduate school. While I was at graduate school, I had friends who were taking the Foreign Service exam. I had no idea what it was. They said, well, it's a Saturday. It's free. Why don't you sign up? Well, I'll go out for lunch afterward. And I did. I took it. I passed. Then I took the oral examination, and I passed. And at that point, I thought, well, this sounds like fun. First of all, it's a salary. Second of all, it's a chance to serve my country. To be honest, I thought I might only stay a few years. I'll stay till I get tired of it. Then I'll do something else. And 30-plus years later, I never got tired of it. It never got old. It was always exciting and interesting, and you felt like you were making a difference. It felt important and significant and at the same time, an exceptional adventure. As I understand it, though, your parents weren't that excited about you joining. You've done your homework. It wasn't what they had in mind. My (laughs) mother, oddly enough, thought I should be a TV weather girl. An interesting choice. Not that I took meteorology or understood much about it, but that was her dream. And I think my father liked the idea of my working on Capitol Hill. He had himself worked for a senator. So when I came home to announce that I had been accepted and I was joining the Foreign Service, they were very unhappy. And in fact, my mother didn't speak to me for about four months. And to be honest, they never really adjusted. They didn't envision their only daughter, oldest child, living a life that would be overseas and back in Washington sometimes, but not always. And so your first assignment, you were assigned to Kingston, Jamaica. Kingston, Jamaica. And you're 25 years old, single, right out of grad school. Your parents are a little ambivalent. What was that first tour like? I wasn't prepared for what it was just because I don't think I knew what living on a tropical island would be like and that it wasn't the same as the kind of vacations you see about in travel brochures. It was beautiful and scenic, lots of great reggae music. But the time I was there, the island suffered from rolling blackouts. Mm -hmm. So we had electricity a few hours a day, running water a few hours a day. They didn't always coincide. There were challenges. And at that point in time, although I think it's much improved, there were major security issues, particularly in Kingston. So it was a very different experience for me, in a way, a very, very good experience, a chance to really learn what it is like to be somewhere else and what the culture is and what the economy is and how people think. And I was really lucky to serve with just a fantastic group of fellow junior officers, all of whom, like me, were just starting out in our careers and exploring life. So We had a lot of fun together. We learned to snorkel. We went diving. We did a lot of great things in our spare time. 
I know you had said that during that tour, there were a couple of occasions when you were mistaken for a summer intern. And I'm sure that's something that a lot of our listeners can relate to. You said that experience taught you the need to convey professionalism and confidence in the way that you dress and the way you speak and the way you carry yourself. Can you expand a little bit upon that experience and your takeaways from it? Obviously, I was probably close to the same age of many of our interns. But when I got mistaken for the summer intern twice, once by the ambassador (laughs) and once by the deputy chief of mission, the number two at the embassy, I did realize that perhaps bouncing into the office without thinking about why I might have been asked to come talk to them about an issue or Hmm. what I was working on. One Mm -hmm. of those moments where when it happened the second time, you think, this might not be random. Maybe an excellent opportunity for me to think if the ambassadors asked me to come brief on something or hmm. the deputy chief of mission asked me to accompany him to a meeting, maybe I should do a little homework first. Show up looking the part and sounding the part. And many thought of that, I'm sure, before I did. But for me, it was the first time I realized it's not good enough to just be smart mm-hmm. because everybody in our business is smart. You don't get into the foreign service or many other jobs without having a degree of intelligence and preparation. And so the answer is I'm going to have to work harder. I'm not going to be good at this just by freak chance. I'm going to be good at this because I work for it and because I act and behave professionally. And I'm someone that these senior people say, oh, she's obviously prepared to join me for this meeting. Mm -hmm. She's done the background. So it was a great wake-up call. Absolutely. And luckily at absolutely zero cost because it was my first tour. And as you know, your your first assignment in the State Department, it's your chance to learn. And everyone knows that. Fast forward 25 years. You had an incredibly distinguished career within the department. But part of what cemented your legacy is the number of barriers that you broke From 1998 to 2001, you worked as the executive secretary to Madeleine Albright and Colin Powell, which means you were essentially the deputy chief of mission for the Harry S. Truman Building, and you were the first woman to hold that position. In 2005, you were nominated by President Bush to be the U.S. ambassador to the Philippines, and you were the first woman to hold that position. In 2010, you were confirmed by the U.S. Senate to be the U.S. ambassador to Thailand, and you were the first woman to hold that position. What do you think you did differently than your peers, both women and men, to achieve that level of success? That's a superb question. First of all, I never thought at the time that I was breaking barriers. I think in Mm. every case you thought, really? I'm the first woman? That hasn't happened before? How is that? (laughs) That's a good point. Really? Not a, oh, wow, this is groundbreaking, but a, geez, we're just getting to that? Ridiculous. But – Second of all, I do think in our business, people are eager and smart, and they've passed a lot of hurdles to join, intellectual tests, as well as security, medical. So everyone has hit a standard of excellence. And my conclusion was, I'm not a bit smarter than any of the rest of those people, but I will work harder. I will prepare. I will think about. I will observe. I will seek advice from senior people, from my peers. I will never, if I can help it, walk into something without having gotten the benefit of lots of sage and smart people who can offer views on how to do a position and would it be appropriate for me. I will also say I've been strategic in seeking out positions where I thought I would be successful. I, for example, can't add. 
I can't do math. It's, it's a fact, <laughs> and it's deeply unfortunate. And I'm so grateful to the calculator on my iPhone. But so I would never be the chief financial officer of the State Department, and I would right. never seek that sort of job out. On the other hand, I think I'm very creative when it comes to policy. I like managing people. I like solving problems. I'm calm in a crisis. So I seek out jobs that would suit those talents. And that's also important in our business. Work hard, outwork your peers and your colleagues, seek advice, select positions for which you're well-suited. Do you have any other specific advice for junior and mid-level career professional women in particular who are serving the department and or thinking about joining the diplomatic corps that might be separate and apart from that very good general advice? I talk often now to not just women but to diversity groups. And by the way, mm-hmm. diversity groups include, for example, all my Georgetown students because they're young and yeah. that's a diversity group. None of them going in look like what someone expects a senior leader to look like. And if you're female in many cases, certainly in many parts of the world, I mean, you mentioned some of those barriers, but many of the countries I served in, Ecuador, for example, I was not the first female ambassador, but people like the Ecuadorian military had no women. And yet they were a very important group for the ambassador to get to know. So you have to deal with groups that are not going to be 100% comfortable with your diversity. Mm -hmm. And those of us who are women or other diversity groups, younger, older, ethnic, racial, religious, we bring strengths. We bring a different point of view. But I think one of the keys to working effectively is to make it easy for other people to accept your diversity, to be a positive contributor a team player, where you're viewed as someone who is bringing at the right time, well-phrased, well-thought-out approaches, perhaps a new look, a new idea, but not in a way that shuts people down, not in a way that says, I'm a woman, so you must listen to me. No, it's in a way that says, hi, I'm Christy Kenny, and I have some thoughts that might be helpful on this issue. I'm offering them my thoughts in my professional capacity And I think that's important to all of us to recognize each one of us, regardless of our diversity group or lack thereof, brings something unique. We have special talents. We have different body of experiences. But the best way is to learn to work with other people. So you're offering your best effort as part of the team. I mean, the Foreign Service is a team. The State Department, civil servants and contractors, all of us are a team and we're working with each other. And that, to me, is one of the key strengths of any good officer. And for people looking to join, the diversity of our organization is exciting. Mm -hmm. We bring so much. We bring people from all over the United States. I have a great Foreign Service friend who was a firefighter before he joined. We've done everything. And the thing is, you need to understand your new organization, your new home, the Foreign Service, and then work to bring your talents into it in a way that helps. You mentioned Ecuador in passing where you served as the ambassador. While you were there, you supervised nearly 500 U.S. government employees. In the Philippines, you managed a staff roughly double that size. And then in Thailand, you managed over 3,000 people. That's one of the largest embassies in the world. As we discussed earlier, you helped run uh, Maine State in a few different roles. Tell us a little bit about your leadership style and what – tips or advice on leadership you might have for mid-level officers who are looking at competing for slots in the senior foreign service? 
I think for all of us, though, leadership is a learned skill. Maybe there are a few people you read sometimes, a born leader. I think those are probably the people who just figure it out earlier than the rest of us. So you watch other people, copy what's good, throw out what you don't like, and keep learning. Some of the skills I learned along the way, listen to your team. And if you're making all the decisions, doing all the work, why do you have a team? You recruit the very best people you can recruit, then give them space, room to go out and dazzle you, come back every day showing you how terrific they are. And that takes a little bit of a leap of faith. So if I assign you something and say, go for it, Jeremy, come on back when you got it, I've got to hope and assume you can make it right. And if you don't, I got to be prepared to manage that. When you look at your tenure in Thailand, you handled U.S.-Thai relations during a pretty tumultuous period. There were historic floods in 2011. There was the 2014 military coup. Walk us through crisis response from the perspective of a U.S. ambassador. What is your thought process when you receive news of a crisis? What's the first thing that you do? And following that initial response, how do you prioritize your time and resources to respond most effectively in the days and weeks and months that follow? I think one of the great things I learned, by the way, from the experience in the operations center, I know you've had a similar experience, where Mm -hmm. you're managing crises all the time. And so you learn to do several things. One, be very calm. You have to think, what do we know? How does it affect us? And then what, if, how are we going to do something about this? And so as the leader, the what do we know means you're tapping your team. And often your team are the first to give you this report. Great. Pulled together your crisis team. The tycoon, for example, was a surprise to all of us. But I had a great team. We could all go out right away, start calling, start talking. What do we Mm -hmm. know? Where do we know it? What do we need to tell Washington? What kind of response does Washington suggest? What about our fellow embassies in town? What are they hearing? What are they seeing? What are they saying? What do we tell American citizens? Which, of course, is one of our first responsibilities, right? The first is how are our staff, our buildings, and how are American citizens? And what do we need to do? The rank of career ambassador is the military equivalent of a four-star general. Since that rank was created, only 53 diplomats have achieved that rank. Yet both you and your husband achieved that rank at, I believe, the same time. Exactly the same time, on the same list. Right. But since we use different last names and his last name starts with a B, he thinks it means he outranks (laughs) me. And I allow him to live with that fiction. So how did you both do that? How did you both navigate this career and both become career ambassadors? I think some of it's good luck and good fortune because we know a lot of terrific people who didn't achieve that rank. And sometimes it is luck and good fortune. And we were both incredibly lucky. We were both ambassador three times. And I think that's more than either of us ever expected and certainly fabulous opportunities. But we didn't expect that. And we're thrilled that those came along. But it had never occurred to us that that would have happened. So I think in many ways, we were fortunate and It was a pleasant surprise. So one reality of the Foreign Service that folks that are thinking about joining may not fully comprehend is that you both had to spend considerable amounts of time apart from one another. How did you go about setting priorities as a family to navigate all of that? 
When we first got married, we were both Foreign Service officers. We had both been in the Foreign Service, I think, about, well, Bill had been a year ahead of me, so maybe six and five years. We were both junior staffers then for Secretary of State George Shultz. And at that time, we said we would never, ever take separate assignments unless or until we were offered two good, in our qualification, ambassadorships. And we laughed at that because we thought, that's never going to happen. That's a good joke. And then they called our bluff many years later. <laughs> so we consciously always sought jobs together. And that's a package. Sure. But everyone in the Foreign Service has some personal issue. You may have small children. You may be single and want to serve somewhere where there would be a social life, not a three-person post. Or yeah. you may have elderly parents, so be looking to serve in the United States or nearby. Again, there are so many factors that determine for each and every one of us. So to mm -hmm. think that because being married to a colleague made it easier or harder, it doesn't. It's just the factor you're looking at. Every time we would be looking at assignments, we'd be looking at the best package, what gives us both something interesting to do. And it really wasn't until they called our bluff and said mm -hmm. to Bill, how about you be ambassador to Chile and me have it be ambassador to Ecuador? Like, wow, well, now we've been offered two really interesting <laughs> jobs. So you hadn't served apart before that we point. We had not. We had navigated it, I think, exceptionally skillfully. And our conclusion at that point is these are once-in-a-lifetime opportunities. Sure. And we were both in Latin America. We can figure it out. We don't have children, and that makes it a little bit easier. We do have some cats. The cats raised their paw to go with me. <laughs> they got a choice. You can pick. They said we're going with her. So we didn't, to be very honest, expect it would be three ambassadorships. So we thought, yeah. well, this is a couple of years. And sure. my husband's a military child. So yeah. his father was deployed overseas at several wars. So I think for him, it was a little less surprising. He'd seen that family model, whereas I hadn't. But we also concluded, we'll figure it out. We'll do vacations together. In today's world, we can email, mm -hmm. we can FaceTime, we can mm -hmm. Skype. It wasn't easy, but it also it's interesting because we were both doing the same job both being ambassador. So we both understood periodically. We would send mm -hmm. each other emails, the kinds of things you both understand. You're doing the same thing. I'm sitting here listening to a long-winded foreign minister. <laughs> <laughs> Hope he thinks I'm paying attention. <laughs> so we both felt like this won't last forever. And yeah. these are amazing opportunities to yeah. serve your country to take a leadership role, to help shape relationships with countries. It was kind of hard to overlook. Absolutely. If we could, I'd like to quickly shift gears and talk a little bit about the media, particularly about social media. You were an early and pretty successful adopter of social media. You've currently got about 60,000 followers on Twitter. Tens of thousands of those people started following you when you were ambassador in the Philippines. And that was around 2006-ish. Mm -hmm. And that's well before social media really took off. A lot of those folks, interestingly, kept following you and engaging with you even after you'd left the Philippines to become ambassador in Thailand. What do you think resonated with the Filipinos and later the Thais about your personality or your persona or your style of engagement? And are there any takeaways or lessons that our listeners, particularly our mid-level and junior FSOs, can apply to their own public diplomacy work? I kind of backed into that social media because I was in mm. the Philippines, which is a very social country, and everyone is on some form of social media. They love to share. So I started doing that, 
And it became, I realized, a phenomenal way to connect with people. And I'll take that a step bigger and say that it started to dawn on me and perhaps should have much earlier in my career, the importance of thinking about as a diplomat overseas, how do you connect with people in this country? Mm-hmm. How, where, when? I obviously meet as many in person as you can. And as you get hired, the ambassador, you meet people in person. You're certainly on TV. You're on newspapers, on radio. But these days, a lot of our audiences are online. So the question you're asking is, who are our audiences in this country? Who aren't our audiences? And how do we reach out to them, even if they're people who don't agree with us? It's nice to be able to offer information and access and a sense of comfort with United States officials. And so that began to drive it. And I found what was fascinating is I was hearing back from people, Hmm. not all fans, and some of them trying to use me as one-stop shopping. Like, what time does the consular section open? You know, and you can't be the information service for the embassy. But I also found I was hearing from people. Or if I traveled to a certain part of the country, people would say, oh, while you're there, you should try this sort of food. And so it became a great way for me to hear from people, to make my position a little more transparent. You obviously don't share everything you're doing. One of my cousins, who's a follower, said, what fun your job must be like. It seems like every day is fun. Well, every day isn't fun. Sure. I obviously am not tweeting pictures of serious meetings. I'm having yeah. difficult conversations I might be having right. either internally or perhaps in a foreign country on an issue the United States and that country disagree on. Yeah. I'm respecting people's privacy yep. and the importance of private conversations. But you are at least sharing a little bit more about what the embassy does, what you do. And I found that to be so rewarding And I've continued to engage. Many of those people I still hear from. I'm a big sports fan. I hear from fellow sports fans from the Philippines and Thailand and a few from Ecuador who weren't even on social media when I was there. So for me, that's been so rewarding to swap stories and share lives with people that I don't see in person and might never see in person. But I feel like I know. Another job you had, 2016 – The then-secretary asked you to serve as the department's transition coordinator. Tell us a little bit about the role of the transition coordinator and what it was like to try and facilitate a smooth transition between the Obama administration and the Trump administration, given how different both of those teams were and are. I've done that twice because I also did the coordination between Secretary Albright and Secretary Powell. Okay, I didn't know that. As counselor, I think I perhaps more wisely was smart enough to bring in the executive secretary and the undersecretary for management. So while the secretary named me, I made it a trio Mm -hmm. because the two of them brought so many important resources. And the two of them really had the lion's share of the brain power and the resources to help a new team, both in terms of briefing paper, but Mm -hmm. offering them office space and building passes and all of the things that go with bringing on a new team. The truthful matter is we prepared very hard. We thought a lot about it ahead of time, both times. But each transition team is different. Secretary Powell headed his own transition team, which in some way made it our work was almost prior to his arrival because once he arrived, he was assembling Mm -hmm. his own team and had extensive experience 
in the U.S. government. He had been the national security advisor, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs. So he knew how he liked to run things, how he needed to be briefed, what he needed to know. And so the administrative people, the management staff turned out to be much more important, getting people badges and Mm -hmm. hired. He was bringing in a few assistants and others. Whereas at the second transition, the coming in of President Trump's team, we didn't yet have a secretary of state. Mm -hmm. So it was a transition team organizing things but without actually knowing who would be the secretary of state Mm -hmm. and without then being able to suit things Mm -hmm. to that person's interest. So it's really a process of trying to help a new team in the ways they want to be helped. Because they sometimes have views on what sort of information they would like. Some of the people brought in for the transition are just there to transition and then go back to their day jobs wherever else in the country they're from. Others may stay on at the State Department or elsewhere in foreign policy. So it's a very fluid time. And the key is really trying very hard to help them be introduced to the State Department Get those who need to be on the payroll, on the payroll, make sure people have access that they need, make sure they've got temporary security clearances, and also all of the briefing information that they Mm -hmm. need to know about. So it really is quite a team effort and a shifting one. As they conclude, we'd like more in this way. We need this. We need that. I did see a note on your social media feed this morning about Ambassador Yovanovitch, and I saw that you sent a note of support for her given that she recently announced her resignation and she also published an op-ed this morning. And one thing that she highlighted in that op-ed was a fear, as she put it, that U.S. institutions, including the State Department, are in danger of being hollowed out over time. What is your take on that and on the current state of U.S. foreign policy, the current state of the State Department? First of all, I remain very optimistic I think you, like me, see a lot of the incoming talent we have in the State Department, and they're incredible. And the students I work with at Georgetown, I hope all of them join the U.S. government somewhere. (laughs) There's never a bad time to serve your country. And as a citizen and a taxpayer, I can tell you I want the very best and brightest to be representing me on foreign policy, on economic policy, the best people to be doing my taxes, everything else. You don't want anything less than the best. So I think there's never a bad time to serve your country. And there's always a good time to bring your talents to the service of your nation. And I feel quite optimistic by the people who are interested, who are taking the foreign service exam. But I also take Masha Yovanovitch's good point that good governance doesn't just happen, that it's incumbent on all of us to do our best to step up in the good times and the bad times, to offer our best advice, our most candid input to our supervisors, and to be as apolitical as possible. Obviously, Mm -hmm. every president of the United States deserves the support of the United States State Department. And by the way, regardless of how I voted my whole career, I voted for some of the people who ended up being presidents, not some of the others. I always want my president to be successful. There is no doubt of that in my mind. I want my president to be successful. I want my country to be successful. And whether or not it's the candidate I picked, I want whoever the American people pick to do the best for us they can. Mm -hmm. And so I think a good example, I mean, people like Masha Yovanovitch got put in a very awkward situation. It's not Mm -hmm. a normal situation. There have throughout our history been 
difficult moments and times. She, I think, was very professional, did not testify until subpoenaed, in, in which case she had no choice. Her testimony was clear but not political. The choice to depart is a choice you make at a certain point when you are no longer comfortable that you can carry out policy. Mm-hmm. That's a decision you make. I know her and know she did not make that decision lightly and did not make it as a junior officer, very senior. I know a lot of people currently in the State Department who are terrific, who are doing yeah. a great job every day. Look at our colleagues evacuating people out of Wuhan. Look at our colleagues who respond to natural disasters around the world, who yeah. negotiated a new agreement with Canada and Mexico, mm-hmm. who negotiated agreement between Eritrea and Ethiopia. And these are all people doing amazing work absolutely everywhere, every single day, and loving it, proud to serve. Any final thoughts or words of wisdom or words of support for folks that are out there serving in the field? Well, we have a great team, as you know that. It's an honor to serve the American people, and it's a privilege to be one of the people who look to chart the future. I mean, a good foreign service officer, a good member of the State Department, isn't just going through their daily to-do list. Hmm. They're thinking about looking around corners. What should we be doing tomorrow? How can we advance our country's interest? How can we connect with other countries around the world? And even if we disagree with country X on the following issues, is there some other area we can work on? And so I think for our colleagues in the field and at home, that's the excitement, the challenge, and the privilege we have for the American people, is thinking about how we manage today's challenge, but also what are tomorrow's? Who are the people we don't know around the world? Who are the audiences we would like to know about America but don't know about America today? Mm -hmm. How can we reach them? Who are the people we'd love to have being buying American products? How do we find them? Who are the leaders of tomorrow of the rest of the world? And so for me, all of these sets of exciting challenges, what do our embassies need to do? How do they need to be structured for tomorrow and 10 years from now and 20 years from now? How do we work with other parts of the U.S. government? What are our best relationships? And so our colleagues in the field, I hope, are doing that and are loving that challenge. Every day isn't perfect. Every day isn't easy. We all work for people we do like. We work for people we don't like as well. These are facts of life. But in general, we are so privileged have this opportunity to serve our country and to serve it around the world, to be the face of America. I don't think it gets much better. Ambassador Kenny, on behalf of all of our listeners and the department, our heartfelt thanks for joining us today. You can find more detail on Ambassador Kinney's post-State Department career at the Olmsted Foundation, where she currently serves as director, as well as at Georgetown University, where she teaches leadership development at the Georgetown School of Foreign Service. Special thanks to the Una Chapman Cox Foundation, as well as the American Academy of Diplomacy, for supporting today's program. If you're interested in exploring a career in the Foreign Service, please visit careers.state.gov. And to find out more about today's guest or to dig further into the history and practice of U.S. diplomacy, please visit uccoxfoundation.org or adst.org. Lastly, please rate and review our podcast so that folks interested in foreign policy and careers in the Foreign Service can find us. Thanks very much.